Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, there's only one way you can rate this Ireland game, which is out of ten. No half numbers. What do you give it? Seven. Eight. Oh, I would go for seven as well. Um, it would have looked better if we hadn't conceded the last two tries, but overall there's a lot to be happy about in a performance. Uh, and there's, I don't think we, we could ever get uh, beaten the crap out of France. We should ever take that for granted. Yeah, well, when Gabriel used to do the toy show, like when we were kids, he would say, what would you give this toy out of 10? And like, the kid would say, whatever, eight. And he goes, and what did you take two points away from? <laughs> like really put them on the spot. <laughs> and that's what I'd take two points away from, the last two tries. Otherwise, I'm not going to say it's a perfect game because there's no such thing. But we're leading 26-0 against France in the Six Nations after 57 or 58 minutes. is really good. You know, that's the biggest win we've had in the Six Nations against France in my lifetime. I was looking up the uh, record defeat of France. 19-13 in the Mardike, 24-0. There you go. Um, you'd take two... Good research. Very much. We also beat them twenty four nine in the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not the record. Uh, there was you took away two points for the two tries at the end. You took away three points. What did you take away three points for? I thought that France weren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, and that would have skewed so can you ever give 10 out of 10 well of course you can so I would have given the win over New Zealand a 10 um, and I thought that France were less impressive than the All Blacks that's I the that's sort fair. of insight that I'm giving my three points for Ireland had uh, the French pinned in their half for almost the entirety of the first half in, a, in an extremely unusual fashion um, we did feel a little bit blunt at times until we ran our strike moves. Do you worry about that at all? No more so than I have done for a number of years, but actually it's it's harder than it was the, the weather conditions are brutal. Like we walked part of the way, we walked all the way. Mm-hmm. And um left in Fairly glorious sunshine, and two minutes later, we're in torrential snowstorm. Um, and it was only when the camera panned up to Brunel in the first half that you could see how hard it was sleeting down at, at that time, um, because the weather changed very. But like the picture was so good that the ball you could tell would be really greasy because the, all there was was surface water on the pitch. So that's an odd thing. Like the, the pitch didn't cut up at all. It wasn't heavy, but the ball was really slippy. And I thought that our handling was really good. It's like how, how do you score from ten meters out? I think you need you need to get a lot of quick rook ball. Yeah. I think you need to. Um, it's probably of all the things that I saw at the weekend that kind of disappointed me. Like Ireland's wouldn't have been for for some reason. I thought that the Italians scored a try in the second half where they went through the phases and even and they varied the point of attack sufficiently well enough that they narrowed the English defense and they threw one or two offloads in there which you could you'd certainly term as, as risky because you know you always want to keep the ball there but you do want to score but they also picked and jammed I thought Tabaldi slowed them down a little bit but they scored a really good try through pressure rather than creating mistakes mm. or through a sort of a weird breakout and I was there going God like they have all the potential to do the same again and to to put Twickenham just to silence Twickenham because the Italians scored two tries and they couldn't manage it um, their first half try was very good as they well they couldn't manage they, Tommy Allen's one whether they weren't fit enough or uh, it just seemed to me fitness or whether they lack the ambition, I'm not sure. So 
But pretty come back to that one a bit later. I thought we did well to sustain the pressure in France, and I thought that the match summed up a lot of what Ireland have been or where Ireland are under Joe Schmidt and where France have got to um, without having Joe Schmidt as their coach. Um, in that, when France do something, there's kind of there's no backup to it. It just that's their thing. Whereas when Ireland do it, stuff generally doesn't tend to go that wrong. There almost seems to be a, like a fail-safe and people, obviously, like we're among them, would criticise them for being too conservative, the Irish rugby team for being too conservative at times. But it's very purposeful. And, you know, at just a point in time, that is what Ireland are really good at. And I, like, I take, for example, like Fiku kicked the ball away in the first half when France had first, you know, had got their hands on it. But it wasn't an enormous kick. It just cleared the ball into our half and we had a really good day at the line. And so we just got the ball back and kept attacking them. And you're kind of going, like, that's it. You're not you're not going to try to deprive us of the ball. You're not going to try to put us in an awkward situation by putting a kick to... We've got two really small guys in our back three. So, and you've got bigger wingers than we have. But you're not going to ask any of those sort of questions by keeping the ball long enough that you're out half can ask those sort of questions because that's what England are doing to us and France I hadn't a clue how to do that um, which would be one of the reasons that I sort of take the, the opposition into when I was given my 7 out of 10 that I'm going to justify for the rest of the pod yeah I think I think you're, you're spot on though Ireland's coherency and unity of purpose I suppose but also understanding of that what they're going to do, what they're going to do in the next phase, what these three phases are leading up to. They clearly understand what they're trying to do in every part of the pitch. France don't understand what they're trying to do in any part of the pitch. You know, talent-wise, it's you could say French players are talented, um, but it's a team game, and it's not about it's not about individually talented players. And you, I think that the Keane Healy knock-on for his attempt at the try encapsulates a lot of the difference between the two teams that Keane Healy and Conor Murray both went for that try they both understood the laws they both understood the ramifications of what the French were doing in that uh, Picamoles brought it a little further back and then Dupont brought it again a little further back to suit himself and put the ball on the line uh, so the French put themselves into that position without realizing the ramifications of what they were doing uh, and if you want to put one part like as Dupont did that um, he was their, their best player and then got absolutely hammered by James Ryan oh for his, my word. For his it, troubles it, it didn't look but like the anything but the fact that the two Irish guys like it wasn't just one guy happened to have read that law the night before it was like the Irish guys know what that law says they know like that where you can come in in the rook because the rook is over once the ball has, has crossed the line so you're taking that chance um, that to me sums up the difference between the team it was like professionals and amateurs really yeah, we heard some of Dricko's, um his off-the-ball analysis just before we uh, arrived at our top-secret location in the studio. And he was giving out about uh, Jan Huget's positioning for Ireland's first try. So when Lammer put in a long raking kick, which went down uh, into the left corner, he was just saying that Huget was just not covering the uh, with the fullback being in the chase, and Huge just decided I'm just gonna hang out where I am. Uh, Huge just made a huge amount of line breaks. This, this Six Nations, I think he's the, I think he's the highest number of line breaks of anybody in the tournament. But he's not playing any position this time out as he was against uh, England. And yet he go, he, he either doesn't know what to do as a like 20, 30 year old winner or whatever he is. Or he just didn't bother to do it. You know, both of those are. That is not a sustainable mindset. Like, um, but getting back to Ireland, because I don't think we have as many French listeners as we used to. Uh, the bluntness in attack sometimes tries come easy. Our first try came relatively easy with Rory Best. Looked very similar to the try he scored against Scotland in 2012 when he came around the front of the line out. That was off a little one two move off the front to uh, 
to a player coming around the front and then passing to Bestie. But in that game, he just put himself right through Greg Laidlaw in the corner flag. And this time, he just did it to Dupont. I was really impressed with Bestie's strength in that one. Mm. He absolutely, like, Dupont's a strong little dude. And he really shunts the measure of the weight. And the other guy who impressed me with his strength was uh, Jack Conan going over to the other corner, where he went through Guillaume Garado, you know, from five meters out, which I didn't expect to happen. And, com- and comfortably put the ball down. We were commenting how well he'd done to get himself over the line without having to extend his arm, mm. without having the risk of the ball being dislodged by somebody he got blindsided by. Um, so... I think in another time as well, Jacob Stocktail scores from the chip ahead. That he 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 just seemed to kick every ball flush, and he he put he put too much in it. But you see matches when Stocktail gets the ball like twenty five out, and you go, he's going to score. Like he he has that he has the look of a shark just chasing some fish for fun. That you know it's it's just going to happen. He has, he puts a smile on his face. You can see the predator's instinct in him. Like he knows he's going to score. And it's unusual and it, it it didn't seem that much in the context of the match because we scored four tries. Like it wasn't a guilt head sort of chance, but Stockdale is so lethal and so big and so strong that, and quick and quick that like if the bounce goes his way whereas I think for Larmer and for Earls um they need like more of a weight. They need it more to be 60-40 than 50-50. Because like, Stockdale's taller. Like, you know, he can get to the ball before it comes down into the grasp of the other man. And it's that sort of difference that makes him more lethal than the other two. Stockdale took a ball in front of us uh, in the second half. Took a flat ball off Cooney, I think. And he crashed through the game, like carrying about three people with him. Like he's a very very big and fast dude. And I felt that that was one of the falling down points when the subs came on. So that was about 23 minutes ago. We had seven of our subs on. And we still had a lot of pressure. We were still in there half a lot and in there 22 a lot. But we didn't really engineer a significant one-on-one uh, with either Stander or Conan on somebody or a back on somebody, either Ringrose, Stockdale or else a bar. You or Larmer. Know, or Larmer. And I felt that... I was, I was very impressed, actually, with our, with our sub-halfbacks when they came on. I thought they added a lot of pace to the game, and I thought that Jack Cardi's... Um, in general, I thought his, his attacking kicking was really, really nuanced. I actually was going to just ask you uh, about that. I thought, um, considering how Connors play... Um, I thought Carty looked to go to the boot a lot more than he does usually, and I thought maybe he was doing something that someone else wouldn't do. That someone else being Joey Carberry, obviously. <laughs> but he, the first two kicks he put in were the kind of kicks you just used to play territory and put pressure on people by making them exit from their own like yeah. five, ten meter line out. And it's something that we haven't hasn't been a feature of Ireland's kicking. Johnny Sexton can do it, but he hasn't chosen to do it much. He's mainly chosen to take it to the line and give a good pass and get absolutely smashed late most of the time. Uh, but Jack Hardy came on and immediately uh, used his boot to excellent effect. I thought it was a... I was wondering if you thought, I don't know, if, if there's anything to my thought that he was showing his range. Yeah, I think there is because I think that... Well, I remember saying it beforehand that Joe Schmidt would not pick anybody to get their debut during the Six Nations. And we, we were talking about Tom Farrell from Connacht, and I just dismissed it. And I assumed that where Carberry or Sexton to be missing, the third out half would be Rossburn, who's being capped. And I couldn't see Cardi being considered, given that he didn't tour, given that there was three guys ahead of him. So then the next thing is that when a guy comes in, he has to take his opportunity. So he's got to get it, you know, he's got to get up to the pace of the Six Nations, even if you're 26 nil up when you come on. You know, you're still playing against France. Like it's still faster. It's still a better opposition. They're still cleverer than the players that you're playing, you know, sort of mid-table matches in the in the Pro 14. Um and he's done very well. Um to the extent that like Ireland took three out halves last tournament, and Paddy Jackson didn't really get a sniff. Like you can't, and you look back and you go, "What was the point of that?" 
Um, now, I, mean, I don't know who got hard done by. I don't think anybody got hard done by and got left out. I mean, you know, Trimby maybe, but like, would Trimby, like yeah. Zebo didn't play and he was in better form than Trimby at the stage. So I don't really know if Trimby, so anyway, that, that's a while ago. So with Carberry being able to play fullback, um, maybe Carty has put himself in. Maybe Schmidt will bring three. I think the fact that Cooney can play out half means that it'll be two scrum halves, two out halves, plus Cooney. Um, and, you know, he loves Johnny Sexton and he wants Johnny Sexton to play. He's We sort of talked about it a few shows ago. Yeah. But, but Carty put his hand up. And he did as, I think he did as much as was available. And I say compare him to Keatley. Like Keatley's played matches and never kind of made the argument for himself. Whereas I think Cardi's made the argument for himself. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, as you are saying, about players coming in and putting their hands up. Ulton um, Delano was a, another one who backed up his, his good performance against Italy with a, a pretty you know, dynamic performance again. Now, Ulton does, uh, like he's a, he's a super carrier. I thought he carried really well and he makes really good tackles. There's other parts of his game which, you know, just aren't as strong. I don't think he's a good scrummager compared to his competitors in the second row. And I think as a line-out player... I don't think he's as good. As good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. And uh, as a line-out player, I'm not really... Like, I was looking back over his performance, you know, season-long performance for, for Connacht, and I think... In the Pro 14, he's won, I think it's 19 lineouts. And he's played about 16 games, so that's like a lineout a game. That's more what you'd expect from a back row player rather than rather than the main lineout figure. And it's not, and you can't just switch that around and say, oh, Quinn Roo's the main lineout figure. Quinn Roo's won similar. Like you're talking about one to one and one and a half lineout wins per game. Whereas, for example, Devin Toner is about about five and a half line at wins per game for Leinster. Ty Byrne is about three and a half line at wins per game for Munster. Those are guys who call line hits, call on themselves and win a lot of line hits. So um, I think there's there's certain deficiencies in, in Delan's game. And for me, as and I think it's really positive that we can have a guy who's who's a third choice second row and can contribute well in in the Six Nations. It's getting towards what England have and have had for a number of years in the second row when they've got you know, Cruz, Launchbury, Itoje, Laws, etc. You know, I think we're we're sort of at that in terms of our second row. Uh, I was disappointed, like like a lot of people in the stadium, to to leave on the flat note of two very late tries conceded and two quite soft tries. It looked to me. France didn't have to do much to score, um, and. That yeah, it was just uh, it was a bit. It was hard to pinpoint like who's who's to blame. It was just noticeable that after an hour we were twenty six nil up and we ended up winning by twelve. Um, made me think of just how unusual a position it is for us to concede tries like that in a dead like in a sort of dead rubber last twenty minutes. Yeah, it was an unusual situation to be in 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 a Six Nations game. In any Six Nations game, um. But particularly, particularly one against France, but it also made me think of all the make up the make the result look better tries that we scored against France in the last ten minutes over all the years, and I'm particularly thinking of the World Cup in 2003, um, where we made the score look a lot better than the yeah, game was with, with Magsy and Andrico scoring. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more person to feature, I guess, um, Jordan Larmer. Um, drafted in at the last minute, had a pretty impressive game. I I wanted to play fullback in the future. Wondering if you agree where you see his future position. Again, going back to an earlier pod, you asked, "Do we need to talk about Jordan Armour fullback?" And I dismissed that one as well, like Jack Hardy. So I think, unfortunately, I don't think we found out anything about our fullback situation that we didn't know beforehand. I think that had Robbie Henshaw played against France and had Jordan Larmer played against England, I think that we'd be sort of going, oh, why didn't we put Henshaw in at fullback sooner? And what were we thinking 
after the performance against Argentina of putting Larmer in with Keith Earls. Because, like, England did that to Robbie Henshaw. They were definitely going to bomb our back three with uh, Stockdale Earls and Larmer in it. Um, and, like, Larmer only played because... He only played because of injury. Henshaw wasn't available to play... So you can, you know, you can point to that and the situation, you know, going to two away matches, you need a more defensively sound fullback. There's rationalization for all of it, but I don't think we learned anything. And it was the position that had the most question marks over. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, you know, and I think your your point about the particular specifics of who they were playing when they got selected is, it makes a huge deal. Like people like, people like to see change in selection uh, I, I do as well that you have the options of selecting horses you know horses for courses so to speak um, and Larmer only got into this one by accident um, and then he wasn't tested firstly the French didn't have the ball and like the one test he was put under more or less failed Penno knocked it on slightly going through his hands uh, in terms of you know receiving kicks and positioning for his receiving kicks, otherwise we had the ball like for the entire first half, and France were nineteen nil down and weren't going to play a positional game of kicking the ball away when they had to score four tries. So uh, Arm looked really sharp on a couple of occasions in attack. He's got a little bit stronger, able to caroom off tackles rather than go down at the. Uh, the first contact, his footwork is obviously phenomenal. So there's a lot to like there, but I have to agree that there's no compelling evidence that he's, um, you know, the same sort of long-term fullback that we've been very fortunate to have for a number of years from Dempsey, vying with um, Jordy, and then more or less Rob Kearney with a couple of contenders, Sereni, you know, Zebo and Payne. Um, and I think that we just don't quite have that level, well, we don't have that level of depth that we've been very lucky to have for the guts of seven. But I, th- I think it is important just, just to go back to how much stronger Larmer looks this season, because last season, any time that someone got an arm to him, it, they seemed to have a better chance of stopping him because like, he, was, he, should, he should have still been in the academy, going by age. And the thing about Larmer is he, he always looks like he's getting better. He, he looks like a guy who's really diligent and assiduous and who works hard and who listens to what he's being told. Um, and you, you just get stronger and you get more accustomed to that level of physicality. And there was, there was times like when the whistle had gone and the French guys were trying to tackle him and like Larmer was still in his feet because his, his balance is outrageous and his, his evasiveness is is that good? Like he he he's special, special talent. So you know maybe he'll keep getting better, but he has to keep playing fullback in order to get better at fullback. Because mm. that we've said before that um, you know having the ability to play a number of positions is very very useful for getting selected in a squad and not very good for getting selected in a team. When you're a guy who plays one position and everyone knows what that position is, and they say. Is he the best outside centre? Yes, he is. Like in Gary Ringrose's case, then, you know, he's in the team. Is he, you know, like, for example, a guy like Will Addison? Is he the best outside centre? No. Is he the best fullback? No. Can he cover both? Yes. That's good for getting in a squad. Mm. I certainly think uh, Jordan Larmer should be playing the games against... uh, Russia and Samoa at the World Cup, he's the kind of player who'll make those games easier. Uh, he'll make big holes against disorganized teams who won't be testing him in the air throughout the game. Yeah, that's and a it's good the point. kind of yeah. kind of just like make putting those teams away a lot easier. Like his hat trick against the Italians in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Then a couple of other uh, individual performances to note. Jack Conan got a lot of the game that he probably wasn't expecting to get. Uh, and we ended up playing with three number three number sixes and, or two number eights uh, or three number eights. Um, but uh, given that we had the ball so much of the time, the back row didn't seem to be in any way unbalanced. Um, how do you think 
I thought it was interesting that Jack Conan was the one on the bench, considering he is typically a number eight who's occasionally shoehorned into six. Um, but do you think he might be staking a claim for the 20 jersey over Sean O'Brien? I, I don't. Um, I think O'Brien is potentially an outstanding... Uh, I can't think of a better sub to have. You know, he's he's sort of feared throughout the rugby world, certainly respected. He gives you a lot of turnover. He can get it. He moves well with the ball when he's fit, gets over the gain line. Um, and I think he's a super competitor. I think as a 20, it might be a knock to his ego that he's not starting. But for me, he's he's the... He'd be like he'd be the first sub on my on my team sheet. Whereas I did, I asked the question, and I suppose it arose on Twitter when we had the proposed back row of uh, Conan because I, I don't know whether we thought CJ wouldn't be back or whether he wanted to see basically to see Conan start a match, Omani and Tigburn. So you know, just just pick a huge pack. Pick a team that was going to be really strong on the line out and just, you know, play slightly different and get all your players, you know, with with Henderson and James Ryan completing your back five of the scrum. Um so Manny's really good in the breakdown, Ty Burns really good in the breakdown. Anyway, there was um point made that Omani is you know, has huge moments but doesn't have a huge work rate and that the back row is unbalanced and then we made the point that you've got two of the best turn, you know, we'd be murdered at the breakdown. You made the point that, well, you've got the two best breakdown players in the country playing in that back row with the, with Omani and with Byrne. Um, Conan made the most tackles. So you, you sort of go, you, there are, and like this, we've talked about this in the blog on, on a number of occasions, like the prototypical sort of number six, number seven, number eight that you you want to have but then you also look at what balance does your back row have like if you've got somebody or two guys who will make a load of tackles you can can you sort of afford to carry a third guy who's great at line outs and you know good in the deck or if you've got two guys really good in the deck so Conan shouldn't think it's a done deal because Sean O'Brien was a great player Still, he plays so little rugby that it's hard to tell, is he still a great player? His performance against the Italians wasn't that of a great player. And Conan shouldn't think it's a done deal. He shouldn't think that it's over. I think it's it's the criticism, like, again, I, I think he's so interesting because I think he's got this sort of ability... But he has to he has to push it. Like comparing to CJ Stander, CJ Stander got straight back into it and he was just brilliant. And you're kind of reminded of like I, I love CJ. Um and I was delighted reading that he'd done so a bit of speed work and that he actually had this injury enforced absence. Cause I was thinking to myself, CJ's gonna have a great game because he's gonna be fresh. Like he's never injured, he takes so much contact that he just wears the rubber down in the tires. He he must be running an empty. Compare him to the the players that arrived and you know at a lower level, you know, in sort of Pro fourteen, you November series matches, he's making sixty seventy yard runs. He was beating people for pace. Like he's 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 a different player now because he takes so much heavy contact. But he is capable of that sort of stuff. So how do you, how do you manage that from him? I think it's a good point, and um, he did look really fresh, and he came. You know, he wasn't just at the standard of the game. He sort of led the standard of the game. Uh, uh, I, I, when, I, when I was sort of selecting in that back row, when I was looking at Cone ahead of him, I just thought it was because Stander wasn't going to be mm. fresh. Like To me, Stander is, is certainly the first choice number eight. Um, it's not to say that Cone didn't play really well when he came on. Um, and Conan, you know, Conan has that knack of scoring tries as well like Murray Kinsler put it up today that was his his sixth try in, in 13 games for Ireland which is if you're a winger you'd be happy with that you know um, it's it's good to see uh, during this during this early part of the, the first three games players looked like they were 
so <laughs> not writing themselves out of contention, but they weren't advancing their arguments at all. And it's good to see a player putting forward, putting himself forward into contention. Um, it hasn't happened everywhere on the pitch, but it's good to see it happening there. Another place where someone has forwarded their uh, case is uh, 13, where Gary Ringrose definitely looks like the best player in the country at that position. I was going to give. I was going. I was. We were discussing who'd be man of the match, and we were saying, "Ah, oh, like Ringrose get this, or maybe James Ryan." But James Ryan's a bit like Tariq Furlong, where he always plays so well that you can you can sort of overlook it. And um, maybe if Ringrose had held on to the ball when he was going over underneath the post, he would have got man of the match because he'd have scored a try. But he looked like the best player in the country. He. We're talking about. Um, how England had reinvented rugby before they lost and then we had to, <laughs> had to wind my neck back in there. And the uh, the, three, the trio of, of having Farrell and then Slade and then Elliot Daly, the three kicking options, gave them a lot of variety across the back line. And Ringrose gives Ireland another kicking option um, at second centre. You know, so you're... You've, and, like, we've... Murray's... And you know, and they have Youngs, and we've got Murray, who's a better kicker. So, it's it's a great balance to have, and he just seems to have so much time. And there's nothing predictable about him. And you know, comparisons are odious, but um, if you look at Chris Farrell playing at second centre, and like he, um, there's none of the. Not evasiveness. There's, uh, like it's kind of what you see is what you get. Whereas with Ringrose, like he, he's, there's nothing on ahead of him, so he just hits that switch and he kind of runs that lateral line. Invariably, he makes it over because he's just running, looking for like who's the guy who's I can get outside a bit and I can get in between these two guys. Like where's where's the gap? Like where are the slow guys? Where are the guys that are uncomfortable? And he just hits that ninety degree sidestep. And he puts on the acceleration, and he, he doesn't get—he doesn't always get through. In fact, rarely gets through. But like, he takes two guys, and he gets past the gain line, and he puts you on the front foot, and like no one else does that. Yeah, well, so I, I sort of compare it to his performance against France versus Chris Farrell's performance against Italy, and the way I compare Roy Best's performance against France to Sean Cronin's performance against Italy. You know, there's there's a like there's a you know a significant difference there like I, I'm not gonna it's, it's a it's a difference in just like the level that they're playing at yeah someone needs to stop him referee blows for half time Ireland are travelling to Cardiff with a six day turnaround and there's some murmurs about whether that'll influence uh, changes to the team I asked last week and that's what we ended up tweeting what team would you like to see and ask the same question again what team would you like to see? <laughs> uh, I would. I would like to see. Um, oh, good question. I'd like to see Levy in at seven uh, with Omani and Stander. I'd like to see. Uh, I, I, I'd like to see the same backline. I'd like to see Larmer tested against the team with a, a lot more aerial ability with a lot more um and not like i want us to win this but i go back to asking the questions and not really getting any answers uh i feel that rob carney's definitely going to go to the world cup and who's going to go with him i like to see tyke burn on the bench as well i think that he is like a super duper player and, but there's also the fact that he's played with so many of these Welsh guys. Uh, that has to, there has to be tricks and traits that he knows from them. I know he's not playing necessarily against any of his uh, ex Kalenatli Scarlets teammates, because Ross Moriarty was Worcester. He, he was yeah he was in Gloucester when when uh, Ty Byrne was was in the Scarlets. Navidis Cardiff, Tipperick. Alwyn Jones are Ospreys. Ospreys. Adam Beard is Ospreys. Jake Ball is Scarlet's button. You know, that's mm. a stretch. One. Yeah. Um, but he. Corey Hill is Dragons. 
Is he injured? Y- yeah, he's injured. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, 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 I think as well that there will be a particular, um, there will be a particular. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, direction that because he'd be playing back in Wales, where he'd played for two seasons, because it'd be his first game in the Six Nations. I think that he would have a load to that he'd want to go out and, and prove, and he'd be throwing himself around. This is going to be a difficult game to win because I think we're going to need to kick penalties. And if you recall the England Wales game, Wales only conceded three penalties. In that England were only awarded three penalties. You're playing in a very hostile environment, and. Um, but I think that if we're in the position where we need to score a try in the last 10 or 12 minutes, we won't. So I think that we need to take points whenever they're on offer. It's a completely different scenario to the French game where we were going for a bonus point from literally the first minute on. Kicking to the corner all the time uh, to try and get those four tries to put us in contention. Whereas against the Welsh, as you said Previous to us being mic'd up, um, we should treat it like a, a knockout game. Win by, just win, baby. It's a, um, I don't know if it counts as a free hit for Ireland. I don't know if mentally after the disappointment of the England match and, and how kind of flat the team was for the the, the, the Scotland match and the, the Italian match that the French match put, you know, a pep in people's steps. And, like, you know, we had the bonus point and we scored, you know, we scored a load of stuff, a load of points in the first hour and we were convincing, convincing 26-0, if that doesn't sound like a contradiction. Um, that there's two well-received uh truisms one is that whenever Wales beat England they're, they're nigh on unbeatable for any of the, the subsequent matches of the Six Nations and the second is the Six Nations is a momentum tournament and with the opportunity to either disprove them or prove the exception to the rule at, at this weekend um, I haven't seen the I don't know if there has been betting issued there hasn't been teams announced on a Monday evening but uh, like Wales can't be underdogs playing against us going for the Grand Slam at home like I assume Wales are going to be favourites and we've been we've been favourites in every other match that we've played even playing away against Scotland when we played poorly in the, you know we've been beaten out the gate at home the previous match so it's it, it's a bit of a free hit for Ireland I think we've had a satisfactory Six Nations when I split it into satisfactory unsatisfactory like you know, I thought I think if we get absolutely annihilated, like I think you know, I, I remember back to the 2005 Six Nations. I was over in Cardiff, and they mullered us, um, and like <laughs> there was such a big gap between the two teams. I think if that happens again, it'll be an unsatisfactory Six Nations. But I can't see that happening, and I think that um, you know the the two away wins and the one home win is it's okay. Yeah, I agree. I was we said it last part actually, um, and I thought that the game against France, especially given the conditions that we walked through to get there, that was going to be an absolutely dirty dogfight. Like uh, the second draw under Declan Kidney. I don't know if you remember that one. That would be possibly twenty thirteen at home. It was a absolute nightmare weather conditions to play in, and I thought it was going to be a similar game to that. And we ended up fairly slaughtering France. And I think it did put a lot of... Uh, it, it, it. The lads lost a few burdens as well by by scoring the four tries before the hour. Um, the other thing as well is that they're, all the players are very used to playing the Welsh players. And as we've said before, this is a very, very successful Welsh team in terms of their their winning run. But I don't think... It's the best Welsh team I've seen, even in the last four or five years. I think there's guys in there who, the Irish players, rightly or wrongly, think that they're just, I'm just a better player than you are. Mm. Um, And I don't see that there's going to be any fear factor about Ireland going to Cardiff. There's quite a lot of experience in the Irish team. There's 
played a lot of games in Cardiff at this stage. Now, that's not to say that the Welsh won't be super fired up, but that can cut two ways. You know, they did fall over the line against uh, France when they were going for a, a Grand Slam. Remember, Dan Lydiot had a blinding game, one man of the match, his last game of the season. Maybe that was 2012, I think, or something like that. Um, so I think that it's going to be difficult. Uh, it's going to be a difficult game for Ireland to win. They're going to have to be pragmatic, which I think plays to their strengths. Um, Wales don't score a lot of tries. They've only scored nine tries in this tournament in the... In their, their two big games in the uh, November internationals, they only scored two tries. In total. In total. You know, they didn't score a try against Australia. It was a 9-6 game, and Australia aren't good. Um, while they have, you know, vibrant attacking players like Liam Williams, who may or may not be there, uh, George North, Jonathan Davies, they're not playing a particularly incisive, they're not playing an incisive brand of rugby at all. Um, and no, I suppose neither are we really. So it could be a, it could be an absolute man up a ton. But it's just to me, it's about not leaving yourself in a position where you have to score a try against Wales in the last ten or twelve minutes to win. Because if I think if that happens, you're playing into their hands. They're really tackle happy. They're really coherent as a defending side, and really fit. Good discipline. Really fit. I think the expectation is Wales will win the Grand Slam. That they're going into this match as favourites, and then going back to the the two truisms, um, that everything is everything is leading up to Wales winning the Grand Slam. So it is a bit of a shot to nothing for Ireland. Now I I don't know if Irish people will completely see it like that, but you know last year was a great opportunity for us. This year is a great opportunity for them. Um, so if the if as you suggest we don't want to be chasing the game, we want to be getting out in front against an extremely tough defence Welsh Welsh team. Therefore, I back your idea of picking Larmer. I always back the idea of picking Larmer, though. <laughs> um, do you think Angus Gardner, the referee, will have any influence on the game? Yeah, and I I don't like. Um I think you're onto is a sort of a waste of time complaining about referees, but it's better to do it when you've won than when you've lost. I I think that this Six Nations has been a difficult uh, a difficult Six Nations to referee, but I do think that that comes down to how the referees have been instructed to referee it. I was saying this uh, to to somebody yesterday. You know, once in a while, Murray Kinsler will give a tweet and he'll show there's a list of, you know, edicts which the refs have been told to look out for. And that, you know, has a big impact on how a particular game or a series of games is refereed. And he sort of gets those through whatever channels Murray Kinsler has. But what I don't understand is why those edicts, which are coming down from Alain Roland, essentially why they're not more publicly shared so people have an idea of what the referees are looking for. Because to my mind, this Six Nations has seen a huge amount of players remaining on the wrong side of a tackle, a lot of side entries, and very poor refereeing of the offside line. Non-existent. I think that's one of those things that every three years or every four years they go, oh, we're going to start looking at this. But that impetus to... uh clamped down at it last six months and then disappears. You know, we have this discussion time and time again. If the ball, like we see knock-ons given when the ball is, it's essentially they're, they're penalising a fumble. It doesn't even have to travel forward. You know, the, the referee sees the ball drop and he goes, that's a knock-on. So you're talking like if it travels forward by an inch, that's a knock-on. And yet you're seeing guys who are a foot, two feet, a metre even offside. And it's not being given. Um, I, I don't know how that is how that is is panning out. You see occasional calls from the uh, the TMO about things like the team only can only 
call for foul play like a high tackle or a neck roll or something like that. Uh, and I do understand that there's a primacy to the man on the pitch. But it is something which is, it's been a frustrating Six Nations to watch. I felt that the Scottish-Welsh game, which was on on Saturday, was just a poor game, full of lads lying on the deck, full of referees coaching international players, which is another bugbear of mine, telling players who are you know coming around the side, offside, or handing the ball, they're all hands off, hands off, hands off. That's a fucking penalty. Blow the penalty. Like, it's a game of seconds in terms of rook ball. Telling players at some stages to take their hands off a ball when they're handling it in an offside position because they've come from the side or because they're reaching into a rook where the ball is still clearly into the rook and you're having to tell them to take their hands off. Like, that is not a good way to referee the game. These lads are the absolute highest end. You shouldn't be coaching them on the pitch. I don't mind a player being told occasionally to roll away, you know, but like when a player is interfering with how quick the, the ball is in the first place by coming around the side or handling in the ruck, I just think that's a penalty. Don't be coaching them. And we don't know, and maybe the maybe these edicts, but you'd imagine that it's been so prevalent that the refs have been told not to have breakdowns. Or sorry, not not for there be not for there to be persistent penalties given at breakdowns and instead to, to manage the situation and to keep the game flowing. It, well, I expect that's what's happened. Yeah, that's a very, very plausible uh, explanation, but I think it's led to one of the most... Um, like, I'm, I'm confused now in terms of... I don't know, you know, how much you're going to get away with at the, at the breakdown. Even watching a couple of games, like I watched the 2017s or part of the 2017 Lions documentary and there was much more clarity about what lads were doing at the breakdown, how quickly players were rolling away, where they were rolling, were they rolling into the, the scrum half, which is happening more this season than I can recall it happening, you know, over three or four years. Um, and it's, uh, to me, it's, it's, and I don't, I can't see any other reason beyond why individual refs who are good refs, the French refs included, are beginning to referee in a way which I don't think is, is like them. My theory on the uh, more prevalent than ever, like ignoring the gate situation, mm. is that they want, they're happy to let lads come in through like an expanded gate or a U-shaped gate because they know if they have lads driving into the ribs of a jackler rather than into his neck and shoulders, they're going to get less injuries. That's very, and I, very I think good point. it's what happens. It's what they don't want neck rolls. They don't want head on head collisions. They don't want lads whose necks are the main target. They want lads to come in and lift them up over the side and flip them out. And the, and there's, it's a very good point. And I think there's another thing that if you do have guys competing at the rook, you don't have them standing out in a line in defense so mm. you, you you know you so you get to a situation where if there's one two guys in from the attacking team no one else joins and everyone else just fans out and you know no one wants to see that definitely so it, it's a, it's a it's it is but refereeing the offside line doesn't like it doesn't affect either of that stuff. Like if guys are a bit dodgy at the breakdown, the offside line should still be refereed tightly. Yeah, and you know it's the first thing to my mind. It's the first thing that the referee and his AR should look at because there's no portion of the game where players are more keyed up than like the first couple of defensive sets that they want to race up as quickly as they can and get a hit in. And if you say you're racing up quickly, but you're you started a foot offside. Your foot is not behind the hindmost foot of the rock. That's a penalty. That's all it has to be. Not like you have to be up on around the halfway mark of the rock, or you need to be near the back. So that is that. I would be hopeful that Angus Gardner listens to this pod. <laughs> uh, hopeful, but not, not entirely convinced. And decides uh, to penalise the Welsh team in front of a feverish, expectant home crowd <laughs> that has an exemplary disciplinary record. Yeah. Well, I just hope... give us the opportunity to thump three-pointers over all day long. But, you know, against Scotland, they were not, it wasn't... 
Wales don't give away any penalties. Like it was a game where Wales gave away a bucket of penalties. Uh, so their exemplary disciplinary record is down to in the game against England. It was down to like the referee being massively influenced by the uh, by the crowd, uh, which which is going to happen. And you know that's home advantage. So, Gatland to sign off with a grand slam before his World Cup. Yeah, I think so. I think Ireland will unfortunately end up needing. Maybe they'll be six points behind, and we'll need a try to score in the end. And Wales will hold out like you know, Rock's drift or something like that. They and obvious obvious penalties won't be given. Um, but not not really like blatant, but you know possible penalties that you're going to get at home won't be given. It's do I think that um, Ireland have more good? I'm trying to think about England. I'm trying to say Ireland have more good players than anybody else the Welsh have played. I think we do. It's be Wales' toughest match. Okay. Looking forward to it hugely. 